0: Hey there, Alpha fans. Welcome to episode number 35 of the Guerrilla Social Work podcast. This this episode, as always, is brought to you by Alpha Counseling and Treatment. Alpha is the largest and most respected treatment provider of forensic clinical psychotherapy for justice-evolved clients in the state of Utah. Alpha Counseling specializes in providing evidence-based practice to individuals afflicted with a substance use disorder or those who have committed a sex crime. Alpha is composed of a group of clinical professionals dedicated to the effective treatment of our clients. Our clinical style focuses on exploring and resolving client ambivalence regarding their problems and centers on motivational processes within the individual that facilitate change. Alpha Counseling takes pride in practicing only interventions proven to be effective at helping our clients navigate their way out of the criminal justice system and never come back. The foundation of our clinical programming is based on the risk-need-responsivity model for treating justice-involved clients. Please call Alpha today at 801-645-5455, or you can visit our always modest website at www.utahsbesttherapy.com. So we're pretty excited about today's episode. Um, this is uh, based on a an article that was released in 2015 uh, titled, Reductions in Risk-Based on Time Offense-Free in the Community, Once a Sexual Offender, Not Always a Sex Offender. So this is a pretty much a sex offender episode. And we're going to be talking quite a bit, uh, Jeff and I, today about the registry, the sex offender registry, and the effectiveness of that. Uh, one of the things that kind of comes into this is, you know, there's a common assumption that most individuals with a criminal record can eventually be reintegrated into the community. Um, but the public has different expectations for sex offenders. In a lot of countries, especially ours, individuals with a history of sex offenses are subject to a wide range of long-term restrictions on housing and employment, as well as public notification measures intended to prevent them from merging unnoticed into the population of law-abiding citizens. So today, Jeff and I are going to examine the testable assumption that individuals with a history of sex crime present an enduring risk for sexual recidivism. Um, And we're going to review the article, give you guys some pointers from that. Um, And one of the things that that we discover um, is that, uh, well, I don't know, maybe we'll just kind of wait for that as we get into it. So uh, without any further delay, here is episode number 35. Glad you guys are with us.
1: All right, man. Episode 35. You ready for this? Yeah. What, what? Dude, way better turnaround on getting this episode out compared to the last gap in time.
0: Yeah, I, got, I don't know what our problem is, but oh, I mean, more. well, I guess more consistency this way is really what we need to do. So, yeah, Jeff and I just finished up and a number of our therapists just finished up a uh, uh, four day training with uh, the wonderful University of Cincinnati. How do you feel
1: about that, man? Love it. it! It's it's fun seeing old Jamie Gruesome Newsom and <laughs> dude, <laughs> and the, dude I was, Kelly was cool too. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. So Jamie Newsom and Kelly Pataco, they're like, uh, they're uh, trainers from the University of Cincinnati, and, and um, I mean, just to plug them a little bit, like uh, Jamie Jamie agreed to do our podcast next time she's in, so we're recording another one in November, and um, I, I mean, obviously we'll be talking about. Evidence-based practice and implementation and whatnot. We have a we have a million-dollar federal grant going with her right now, and um, I mean, I had a follow-up meeting with her on uh, Friday, just talking about. Gathering information and, and, you know, and <laughs> I listened back to that podcast, like Gruesome Newsome. And it, it like, it, to me, Gruesome has always sounded like, like you're a badass, right. you know? Yeah. So I was like, I, by the way, I want everybody to know Jamie is a lovely lady, like top notch. So it's nothing, it has nothing to do with, I mean, we're not trying to be dicks. It's more of
1: like a badass nickname. Right, yeah. right. <laughs>
0: but, uh dude, I was fascinated by um, the amount of, just information that goes into those things like um we had to the, the amount of information on the front end that we have to gather and then send that out and then have her kind of tell us how to randomize that and then place them i mean this is a legit we have an experimental group and a control group and we're trying to show that that the the um the treatment that we're providing is better than treatment as usual it's, it's really cool to be part of the whole thing like I mean, it's just kind of. I mean, I don't know. I'm really, I'm really grateful for them, and they're just world class uh, uh,
1: teachers and coaches. I, I was, I was just really impressed with the training overall. Uh, they've completely like reformatted the way I do treatment myself. You know, I'd, I'd kind of grown into a comfortable habit, and, and I don't think the way I was doing treatment before was was horrible, but this is clearly superior. I, I dig the curriculum. I, I love the whole idea behind it. Uh, yeah, University of Cincinnati, some. Good folks.
0: Yeah. I just think like one of the things I want to educate, um, I, you know, I I teach this in my classes, but one thing I want to educate just clinicians on, you know, you, you can attend a like a conference where you're going to get CEUs, which is fine. I mean, we all have to earn CEUs, the continuing education units to, to do our practice. We have a number per year that we have to earn, but, um, you know, you get to choose where those come from, right? And um, I, I just say your money is no better spent than working with UCCI. Like, it is, a, you know, rather than sitting down for three days or one day and listening to somebody tell you how cool they are, um, the, the the hands-on learning and just the, the background of the interventions, like good clinical behavioral health interventions that that actually move the needle – I just say you can't get anything better so uh nice shout out to them we really we really appreciate your guys's time so but uh what we talking about today man the sex
1: offender registry
0: yeah d- we talked about this briefly with um was it Tiffany that we kind because of, she did some sort of um paper on this when she was in undergrad right that seems right okay and so we were talking about this so this is kind of a controversial subject so you know Jeff and I I think what we'll probably try to do here is give you guys um, a little bit of background on this. And um, also, you know, we have our personal opinions about this, but also we wanted to cite some research that's been done on this to kind of back up that, you know, we're not complete idiots. Well, I don't know. We are complete idiots, but that's besides the point, right? I mean. Yeah.
1: We're still going to cite research <laughs> despite being idiots.
0: Yeah. 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 We, so the research is much more, uh, the research is much more, um, uh, credible than our opinion, but nevertheless it's our podcast. So we're going to give you an opinion anyway. So, um, yeah, I, I don't remember a whole lot about that conversation about the registry with Tiffany, but, um, so I guess just original, just some some history on this. Uh, the registration was was first used all the way back in the 1930s, if you can believe that, and that was for repeat criminal offenders uh, as well as sex offenders. And California, I mean surprise, surprise, Uh, of all states became the first state to implement sex offender registry, and that was in 1947, so that was specific to sex offenders. What? I know. I had no idea. I thought that was weird. Washington state became the first state to implement a community notification on sex offenders, but that wasn't until 1990. So, So this is a relatively... New concept. And the goals of this, uh, it, this is known as the uh, Sex Offender Registry and Notification, SORN, S O R N. Um, programs have been uh, summarized just as deterring offenders from reoffending and giving law enforcement an, invest- an investigative tool and increasing public protection. So, so that second part, uh, giving law enforcement an investigative tool and an increasing public protection. I, I do
1: think that does have some merit, don't you? Yeah. Well, I mean, of course. And I th- i mean, I think the, registry, the registration, the registry as a whole, I mean, I, I, I get the idea behind it. And I mean, honestly, up until I've been doing this for a living and looking looking into the research, like I've, I've been a supporter of it. You know, like it stands to reason if you're just like thinking about it uh, without the research backing it, it, it stands to reason that, okay, you know what? Uh, the community is going to be better off if they're aware of who the potential predators, you know, sexual predators are in the, in their neighborhood and gives them a chance to make an informed decision. You know, do you, uh, parents want to be able, like I kind of want to steel man the registry, you know, and like parents want to be able to know who's in their neighborhood and make decisions, you know, as far as, you know, if their kid can go over to the neighbor's house for a sleepover and I mean, again, it makes sense. The greatest predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And so it's like, okay, if these dudes have sexually offended before, they're going to be more likely than the average Joe to, to sexually offend again. And, And so for both like community awareness and also giving law enforcement a tool, like it, it, it really, to me makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I agree. I think as, as, um, like a law enforcement official, you, you, like kind of the one thing that you said there, and th- and this is very true, um, you know, you... I, I guess in some way, think about it like this. We're, we're all capable of... I guess if a human being's ever done it, we're all capable of it, right? Right. However, that I think you make a good point in that those who have never done an activity are less likely than those who have done that activity. So take sex offending out of this. Let's just say... You know, between you and I, I think right now, neither of us have robbed a bank, right? Not yet. Okay, not yet. And so, I mean, it stands to reason that based on our history right now, we equally have the, the same, uh, I guess, potential or percentage of likelihood of robbing a bank, right? Sure, yeah. But if you had robbed a bank previously and and gotten away with it or not gotten away with it, wouldn't it stand to reason that that because you've already engaged in that behavior, that the likelihood of you doing it again is greater than me who has never done that?
1: Yeah, if we're placing bets, smart money would be that I'd be the one most likely to to rob a bank again.
0: So, so I think the same pans out for a sex offense, and this is for law enforcement. This is why it's so important because um, if if there's you know uh, a report that's made about sex offense, then um, it would it would stand to reason that that going to individuals who have already done this prior to would be a good place to start for investigative purposes. Um, now, now the second piece of that, like informing the public, and and why they may be. In, at benefit for this, this is where maybe this might be a potentially controversy, and then also because it's like publicly available. Any of you can get online right now and search your neighborhood for sex offenders within a, a certain mile radius, or if you're dating a guy, for example, or a gal, um, and you put their name into the registry, you can see if they're on there, and that's public information. So, kind of moving forward on this, the federal government first implemented um, a national registration law. And this was with, it was the uh, Jacob Jacob Wetterling Crimes Against Children and Sexual Violent Offender Registry Act. That wasn't until 1994. And then a national notification law was enacted with, and this is a more um, noticeable one that you guys have probably heard of, which was Megan's Law. And that was the amendment to the Jacob Wetterling Act in 1996. You getting that feedback? Yeah, some weird. Yeah. Hold on a second. All right, that should be fixed. I don't know what the hell that sound was. Anyway, (laughs) kind of back to this. So a national notification law was enacted with Megan's Law. That's a more popular law that you guys have probably heard of. Um, And that was an amendment to the Wetterling Act in 1996. And then after that, all 50 states have implemented the SORN systems. And the federal government has kind of refined this and expanded the scope of SORN. And this is a a series of amendments um, to those um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of things that have kind of gone into that. Ultimately they set forth a new SORN scheme, with the passage of title one of the Adam Walsh protecting child Safety. If you guys know that Adam Walsh, it's a very popular act, uh, child protection and safety act of 2006. And this is the, uh, sex offender registration notification act. This is SORNA, which placed the Wetterling act and subsequent amendments, which replaced those. Um, So, SORNA's requirements and how they differ, they, I mean, it's not really important, but the changes include enhanced registration requirements and procedures, increased availability of sex offender registration information to the public, strengthened information sharing of law enforcement mechanisms. Overall, um, the sharing and dissemination of sex offender information to the general public has, has only increased since it was first implemented. So... I don't know. Uh, on your end, do you have any like reservations about that? Like just having like the you know, general John Q. citizen having access to that information
1: about people in their neighborhood. Well, I'm kind of split on it. I think uh, again, the as far as the uh, the side of me that understands it, like I, I mean, I, so I was just talking about this uh, with my mom not too long ago, and uh, she was saying that. You know, she she likes the idea of having that information on hand to making you know an informed decision you know as to well I guess I'm probably out of the target range for pedophiles at this point in my life <laughs> but uh, that won't stop her from worrying about me and uh, ne- nevertheless like I, I get what she's saying you know it it creates a, a maybe like a security blanket some level of comfort to know who's in your neighborhood. And when I talk to people about this, like, uh, I, in fact, I don't think there's anybody outside of our line of work that I've talked to that are like, yeah, get rid of the registry. It it, it provides a sense of uh, comfort and, and a feeling of community safety. Now, as far as if it actually does anything, as far as if the, the registry actually, you know, moves the needle on uh, recidivism in terms of decreasing it, or actual community safety, I mean that that that's where things get a little dicey. And um, just one more kind of follow up point as far as where I come down on this, the the clients that we work with, they when when they feel embraced, they love it, right? Yeah, they love it when they feel embraced by the community. When they feel like they have you know gainful employment, uh, a house that they can be proud of, and socially integrated in general, they do way better than when they're feeling ostracized and kicked to the curb and, you know, their, their housing options are limited for, you know, their due to their charge. And, and so when I'm bringing this up, I'm not doing that in an, in an appeal to get our listeners to be like, Oh, those poor guys. It's not that it it's, it's what's effective in actually keeping these dudes from reoffending and i'm not sure the registry passes up passes muster on that.
0: Well, so yeah, so i mean like i i i mean anecdotally then i guess what i'm hearing you say is uh, at a base level the 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 registry and the and the information available to the general citizen offers some internal feelings of security, right? Right. Because i, I I guess my biggest problem when I just have sat down and thought about this has been okay, and then what? Like, so I understand that I realize there might be like a sex offender in my neighborhood, right? I think all of us can look at this and say, "Oh crap," you know, Doug down the street is a sex offender, or or whatever. I'm, there's nobody in my neighborhood called Doug, and if there is, I don't know if he's a sex offender or not. I haven't sorry, Doug. Yeah, sorry, Doug. Yes, sorry, Doug. But okay, so you know that so. So now what right yeah, right now what? So one of the things that this they, they did a um, further information on this th- further research on this and they took a sample of uh, 115 communi- community members from 15 states. Um, and this was a, a study that was published for Sorna and um, of those 115 community members they, they were aware of and they supported Sorna. They also thought it was fair they believed that it provides safety for their family. So very similar to what you were saying kind of about uh, your mom. Shout out to Jeff's mom. Uh, They said they thought it makes sense sense for sex offenders to follow the law, which I don't know what that has to do with the registry, or I wonder if that's that they have to follow that law, the sex offender registry law. Um, They see the benefits of SORNA and learning about sex offenders through SORNA, and they said they took preventative measures based on SORNA information. I would like to know what those behaviors were. Um at least thirty eight percent of them did that. Only three percent of them though reported suspicious behavior of the sex offenders and of those three percent, no further convictions were were arise from that. Right. So three percent of the hundred and fifteen, I don't know what the math is on that, but they reported suspicious behavior. And they took and the Thirty-one percent of them accessed the registry, but those who did were more likely to be female, meh, to be affluent, and to have children. So, it kind of fits like mm. what you're saying with your mom. So, I mean, in general, I guess what I'm what I'm hearing there is people know it, they 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 like it, they support it, and they took preventative measures. Although I don't know what that means. Um, and then only three percent reported suspicious behaviors, which seems like a low number, yeah.
1: Yeah, oh, right. And well, when it's saying preventative measures, it, it's saying that the, the people that made the report, or the, or as a result of the registry, s- people in the community took preventative, ma- like like not letting their kids play baseball in the in Doug's backyard, or yeah, like thirty
0: eight percent of them took. Predict- I don't know if that. Who knows? I mean, I, I don't know. They didn't specify that. I mean, I this uh-huh. is not one of the things that I, I, I don't know. Maybe they set booby traps in their yard. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just set a mine in a field in your yard. Um, but you know, the other thing is, is that they did a um, uh, Lasher and McGrath did in uh, 2012 study on the impact of offenders, and they. They looked at this and 8% of sex offenders reported physical assault or injury that they directly linked to the to SORNA. 14% reported property damage. Again, I don't know what property damage means. That could just be getting eggs on their car or something. 20% reported being threatened or harassed. 30% reported job loss, which to me, I feel like that one... Well, we'll come back to that. Nineteen percent reported loss of housing. Sixteen percent reported a family member or roommate being harassed or assaulted, and forty to sixty percent reported negative psychological consequences. And it ended on saying, however, more than one third of adult sex offenders reported communities being safer, and approximately three fourths felt it was a deterrent to offending. So that that shouldn't be. I mean, it you know for for their their sake, there's some numbers in there that were were concerning but most of them felt like it was a deterrent and they felt like communities were safer to that but back to the job loss and housing i don't know what your experience has been but i've worked with clients that that's what they have said they said i got a job everything was good um and then you know uh usually a lot of our clients will go through a uh a staffing agency Mm -hmm. and the staffing agency is well aware of their sex offense um but then they, you know, because the the company likes them and they want to hire them on full time, the company will do a background check and up pops the registry. And the next thing you know, they lose their job or they apply for housing, you know, that they can afford and they, they're otherwise cut off from that as a result of this. So uh, have you experienced that? I mean, well, among other things that uh, clients have said about this frequently.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's. And, and it's it's too bad, right? Because. You know, again, employment, gainful employment's actually uh, a good preventative factor for sexual reoffense. And like you were saying, you know, you've you've got these dudes that'll get hired on through a staffing agency, absolutely crush it for the company they're working for. And then when the company goes to hire them on full time, the the company's screening background screening. Uh, will they? You know their, their registry, their sex offense will pop up, and and a lot of times these companies have policies in place to where even the hiring manager like wants to hire the dude. They want to because they know how good this guy that was with the staffing agency works. But their own internal policy, they they have to they have to ask the guy, and so that that puts our clients in a tough position. And and so when I when I've talked about this before with. You know, people that are, again, not in the field, I think that they like to bring up the trouble the registry causes for sex offenders as an example of a deterrent. They're saying like, well, yeah, they should have thought of that before they sexually offended, you know, and I, I don't know, like, I, I mean, I have my own thoughts on that. Like, how, how how, would you reply to somebody that would make the case that, you know, boo-hoo, poor sex offender, they should have thought of that before they offended
0: yeah yeah I mean uh the the way I would respond is I um so I don't think that their point goes unheard in terms of the heinous the heinous nature of the crime right I think that uh to say that they shouldn't be held accountable is wrong I think they should uh but the, the so the one thing is is on a pragmatic level I think you have to recognize that you know, eventually these guys are going to come back out into the community. So, so that that argument holds water to the degree that if they were to remain in prison forever, okay, you, you know. But we all know that's not going to happen. So, I don't know what the statistic was that I read, and and I'm, I hopefully I don't butcher it. But the reality is, is that you know, of all the sex offenders that are currently incarcerated. of them are going to be released to the community, meaning very few have a lifetime sentence. Right. So the next step is I would encourage that person to become comfortable with the idea that these, these men and women are going to come back into the community. And I guess I would answer that question with a question. And my question would be, okay, knowing that they're coming back into the community, what you know what would you want to happen with them coming in? best case scenario what do you want to happen with that and um i i guess my assumption would be that number one they don't want them to reoffend but number two they probably just want them to become contributing members to society mind their own business and live out their days you know paying taxes working and and doing their own thing right i mean i can't can't make an argument otherwise. I'm sure they don't want them to start reoffending, and and I mean, some might want them to go back to prison, but again, that that starts to work into la la land. You know, we're talking about it's not going to happen, right? Right. So, I mean, it could happen. A number of them do go back to prison for a variety of reasons, but I'm asking them, best case scenario, if that person is staying out of prison, all things considered, you know, what do you want? I can't think of another answer that doesn't come from that, other than. I don't want them to reoffend, and I want them to be normal,
1: right? And throwing a roadblock up in their way that prevents them from full social integration uh, elevates the risk. Well, sure. I mean, so th-
0: the worry is always that they're going to reoffend, right? Right. And there's statistics that are thrown out there that suggest that that could happen. Okay, fair enough. But I guess my um, and, and and I don't want to throw all of those away. Of course not. Right? That's that's silly. I think prevent like some some measures on the front end when somebody is released in terms of monitoring, in terms of restrictions. Mm-hmm. All those seem to make a really good sense. There's no there's no reason to do away with them. Um, Long term though, at you know at what point has and in some people's eyes, this point th- this person has never been. You know they're never able to. To be, I don't know, rehabilitated or or ever get or have redeemed what have happened. Like they're irredeemable, right? No matter what they do. Okay, fair enough. Again, but but the the reality tends to be that if we create too many roadblocks, if we create too many restrictions, if we're too harsh on them, then are we not just setting them up to continue to fail at that point?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point about. The 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 monitoring and the increased tracking, and all the the requirements that these guys have when they're first put on probation or upon getting paroled, that it's, you know, those first few years are it's pretty important. That, so statistically, that's when these guys have shown the most likelihood to to sexually reoffend is those first few years after, um, you know, they've they've committed their offense and there's this a uh, concept called desistance that I mean, it, it's basically that like after a period of time and I, I think 10 to 15 years is the threshold mentioned in that, that journal article that, that you're, uh, that you got it pulled up there. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it basically says that sexual offenders that uh, have gone, you know, 10 to 15 years without, without a reoffense are no more likely to commit a sex offense, you know, a repeat sex offense, than other uh people that have criminal charges, like their likelihood of spontaneously committing a sexual offense. In fact I I, I have it written down here in a more uh it says so so for sexual offenders, uh a plausible threshold for desistance is when their risk for a new sexual offense is no different than the risk of a spontaneous sexual offense among individuals who have no prior sexual offense history, but who have a history of non-sexual crimes. So in other words, when compared to the bank robber, uh, a sex offender that's gone 10 to 15 years without committing a sexual reoffense is no more likely to commit a new sexual offense than a bank robber is to commit a sexual offense. And, and, and so the, I mean, that, that shows that this, you know, the assistance concept is that maybe up front there's a need for increased monitoring and tracking, you know, and uh, I mean, you could make the argument of some type of, you know, registry, you know, treatment comes in on the, on, towards the front end of their, you know, probation or parole, all these different things. But like, yeah, over time, if, if they're, There has to be some point in time where we say, "Okay, our resources are going to be better spent on high risk offenders that have just committed their offense in terms of, you know, maybe front loading therapy or some other kind of supervising uh, concept than it will be to keep an eye on this guy that committed his offense 15 years ago that has had not no repeat offenses and statistically is not any more likely than the bank robber to commit a new sexual offense. Like there has to be some point where we're able to have a different opinion on allo- allocation of resources. And the, I think some of the the problem with this is that people just aren't comfortable with, with the idea of low risk versus no risk. And, you know, and, and people will say, you know, uh, that the, the one victim, you know, the one person that ends up getting victimized by one of these 15 year offense free guys, it's, it's worth it to maintain their registry for that one victim. And I don't know that I have a good argument against it. Cause if, you know, as soon as you're talking about a human being that's been victimized, uh, it's it, it, but, but I feel like you have to like remove yourself from the, Like I guess the emotional impact of considering that, like there there has to be a better way to allocate uh, resources. Not sure I have the answer. So
0: I mean, in short, you're just kind of saying that that I mean, and and look, we're talking about we're talking about a pool of all sex offenders, right? And you're making the case that uh, of those sex offenders released into the community, that there's going to be a grip of them that that you know are categorized as low risk or very low risk. And rather than continuing to maintain kind of the status quo of everybody follows the same registration rules, you're just making the argument that perhaps some of these these other offenders who continue to demonstrate high risk behaviors and, and who continue to maintain um, a you know a high risk designation that. Uh, moving some of the resources and and when we're talking about resources we're talking about money primarily away from those low risk offenders to those higher risk offenders who are obviously demonstrating behaviors that have that have led to those high risk designations in the first place yeah
1: yeah i think that would make society safer overall going that route well and just to
0: clarify the one thing i, I wanted to say was going back to what you said now this was for this this was for it, it, when it came to the desistance one of the things that came up was um, they there was a recent review of 11 studies from diverse jurisdictions and they they uh, had 543 thousand offenders period which is a lot for a study right and they found a rate of spontaneous sexual offenses among non-sex offenders this means criminals who never committed a sex, a sex offense, to be one percent to two percent range after five years. So after five years of having been released, one percent to two percent of those five hundred forty-three thousand offenders committed a criminal offenders committed a spontaneous sex offense. Okay. Um, now, obvi- this is lower than to acknowledge. This is meaningfully lower than the sexual recidivism rates of adults who have already been convicted of a sexual offense. But it, but it's not zero. You know, it's not <laughs> the number's not zero. Uh, and a sexual recidivism rate of less than 2% after five years is a defensible threshold below which individuals with a history of sex offense crime should be released from conditions associated with the sex offender, offender labor, which is what this study is saying. So they're saying... Well, look, if they're below, if they have a recidivism rate of less than 2% after these, after a number of years, why treat them like any, you know, these other guys aren't on a, on a registry, even though they have the same statistical likelihood of committing what they call a spontaneous sex offense? And my question would be is, I don't know, 10, 15 years down the road, is is the registry at that point even a deterrent from a spontaneous sex offense? I mean, is it stopping anything from happening?
1: I. I think that the 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 research shows that that's not the case, you know. It's it. I think the only thing, and this is why I don't have an answer. It you know because I would my guess would be that if if a politician comes along that listens to this podcast and is found finds himself him, his or herself captivated by the guerrilla social work podcast is like, Oh man, those dudes make a really good points. I'm going to put this, um, uh, this motion forward to get rid of the registry. I think there would be a gigantic public outcry. Um, and I, I think that dude would probably get voted out and it's, it's, it's because of the, I think the emotional attachment to the idea of, of the registry, as far as that giving that anecdotal feeling of community safety, as well as the idea that it, it, I think it would feel to people like that, you know, like we were okaying sexual offending or somehow taking it easy on them. And so I don't, I don't know what the best method would be to deliver this concept to people and, and come up with a, a viable solution that Maybe give still some sense of control or uh, safety back to community members, but I mean that I think whatever that magic policy is 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 what would be needed to actually get people to come around on this. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so let's let's be clear here: the likelihood of a politician listening to our podcast and then taking that information and <laughs> uh, trying to you know, develop public policy. That shit is less than two percent for sure. I do see. So, <laughs> so yeah. but but no, I think I think your point goes a long way. Um, what politician, you know, who I mean? And if I think about a politician's job, their their job simply is to get votes, right? Right. Um, and I'm not trying to be cynical. I think that that's that's their gig is to get votes, and sometimes that results in. Policy or laws that that we that we like that we feel benefit us, but not not always. And so, um, for you know, a politician to say, "Hey, folks, this year my my platform is going to be we're going to take it easy on sex offenders." Like, <laughs> wait, yeah. what? First yeah. of all, why are you talking like that? says, so, <laughs> secondly, I cannot see that being a a popular platform that's going to get you votes. Right. Right. It's going to be a hard sell to them. I mean, they'd have to essentially backdoor that somehow. Um, but, but but I mean, and, and you know what's fascinating about this some of the research on this in terms of offenders is, is really wide ranging because we talked about jobs, housing friends, family so on and so forth. The other thing I think it it ultimately results in stress, isolation, maybe loss of hope shame, embarrassment. And and ultimately, what we have noticed is there's a much greater likelihood of them living in disadvantaged neighborhoods where services are less available. So, aka the ghetto, right? I mean, um, and, and a lot of them, according to the research or several research, they find that the SORN d- doesn't necessarily deter their sex offending and they felt it was an unfair punishment. But then a lot of them also says it motivates them to be successful. So, so hmm. even the offenders have a, a wide range of, of what their feelings are about the registry. Um, but but I think the overall idea with the desistance is that the longer you're in the community um, offense-free, the less likely it is that you're going to re-offend. Now, the question would come up, and I'm sure somebody's asking about this, is, well, what about the offenses that go unreported? And And, I mean... So how do you answer that? I mean, what do you say back to
1: somebody who says that? You, you, you just you have to acknowledge it. <laughs> you know that yes, there there are offenses that go unreported. That there, there's going to be people that have been victimized that don't feel comfortable bringing it to light because they don't want to go through the the whole legal process and get drugged through the mud by a defense attorney for the perpetrator. Like there's going to be stuff. Do you feel like
0: be... it's a little bit of a red herring though? What do you, What do you mean? Well there's a lot of laws that go unreported or a lot of crimes that go unreported.
1: Well, well, yeah, but, I, but I, but I feel like if you just call it a red herring, people aren't going to listen. You have to acknowledge that, yes, this is the case. And then say, as, as is the case with all other offenses. Cause I, I think that's where people get bogged down is thinking that, you know, oh, it's, 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 uh, there's, you know, these troves of victims out there that, have not had a chance to get justice. And I don't, mean, I don't think we even know what that number is, but I mean, to your point, there's, there's, yeah. uh, Perpetrators of crimes that of, of all different stripes that, that go unreported. But, but, but I mean, that, that is a, that is a point. There are going to be those. And, and, you know, until we get better at detection, that's, that's going to be an unfortunate uh, side effect of, of uh, sexual crimes. Mm
0: -hmm. So I mean, I mean overall, the the um, I guess the 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 lesson from the research would suggest the longer these guys, well, okay, so so even regardless of their level of risk when they come back into the community, regardless of that, um, the longer they're in the community, the less likely they are to to reoffend, and eventually. Um, all of their categories, whether that be, and we have just for everybody, the, the category of, of, uh, we have well above average, which is the high, highest risk category above average, average below average, and very low. And, um, even so those with above average or lower, um, once they hit the 15 year mark, they reach that point of desistance. Where they are no more likely than any other offender in the community, non-sex offense offender, to reoffend sexually, and after 20 years, or 19, 20 years, even the well above average offenders um, reach that point of desistance. So the message is: the longer they're in the community, um, the less likely they are to reoffend. So. I guess what's the, what's the number? I mean, because a lot of our guys have a lifetime registry and this research would suggest that a lifetime registry and the money that goes into that doesn't necessarily move the needle in terms of future sex offenses, because after essentially 20 years, um, all of those guys are no less likely to, or no more likely, I should say, to reoffend than a non-sex offender. So, you know, I mean, is that the cutoff?
1: Should everything be
0: twenty years, or, or, I don't know. What do you think?
1: I I think that that's that statistic is a good starting point for finding some common ground. Uh, you know it, that I mean, if if we're all able to acknowledge that research study after research study shows this desistence concept to be true at that fifteen to twenty year mark, that I. I think that that's going to be some good common ground between the people that want to abolish the registry completely, and then those that want lifetime registry. You know, and, and so, I mean, let's just say because I mean, you you and I can talk you know theory all day, but when it comes to policy, there would there would need to be a, a concrete number. So let's just say that you know uh, fifteen years is that number. Then the 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 way to counteract that would be you know the the funding that would be spent on on a lifetime registry for some of these folks would then be reallocated to uh, treatment or you know uh, wh- whatever other monitoring uh, for for the offenders that are fresh out of prison or jail in those first few years Tr- like high-risk offenders need an extra dose of treatment and and sometimes the you know the the, the funny might not be there to to provide the level of treatment that like, like for instance, you know, with our outpatient clients, some of those guys would might do better if they had a, a heavier dose of treatment up front, but that's not always a reality for financial reasons as well as, you know, the, the, just the, the struggle that Managing treatment around a, a full work schedule poses anyway, but man, I I just can't help but wonder if the money spent on the lifetime registration could be s- still allocated to help helping decrease recidivism, but in a way that that uh, is actually targeted and effective.
0: Yeah. Well, I yeah. I mean, I guess the the well, and and just to be clear here, we're not talking about somebody who maintains. Like ongoing risky behavior, maybe somebody who can, who continues to violate terms of their pro- parole or probation, Th- those those right. gentlemen or gals would all stay on the registry longer, right? I mean, as a as a as a fact of monitoring.
1: Yeah, we're talking about people that are like doing really well,
0: right? After fifteen years, yeah. maybe that's where we start to reconsider this, and, and so. I guess for the general person, one thing you got to, I mean, a, a good way for a politician perhaps to kind of focus on this or policy range, and this is just something for people maybe who don't know a lot about this, is is tax dollars, right? I mean, tax dollars go towards funding this. I mean, the, the offenders have to pay for registrations, but there's also tax dollars that go into this. and. One thing in the last two years, or last several years rather, a lot of states have done a lot of research on analyzing the financial costs of complying with SORNA. And I, I don't want to do the math here, but I mean, I could just throw a few out here. Um, Utah, where we live, um, for implementation at least in 2009, you know, it was four million two hundred ninety thousand six hundred seventeen dollars per year to be able to do this. Now. The, the one thing you have to consider here um, is y- you need to think about taking the 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 number that's currently on there. This was in two thousand nine, and so I suspect that that's added to that, right? The, the because there's more people on the registry than in two thousand nine, right. especially of lifetime. Lifetime, you you're just gonna continue to add people to this, so the number keeps going up, and. Um, they predicted a, a 1% yearly growth on each of those so you take 1% per year of 4 million and then you add that and then you take the next year so again the math isn't worth it necessarily other than to say that this does have a financial impact and what is the cost of of that of that sense of security some some bigger numbers jumped out california was 59 million nearly 60 million florida 29 million um michigan 16 million Ohio, 18 million; Texas, 38 million. So, so clearly, population size has something to do with it. But I mean, these numbers, as a as a citizen, become concerning because I think that if you just said, "Okay, hey, we have this, we have this public policy that you have to pay for," although we know it has no effect on deterring crime whatsoever, but you still have to pay for it. Cool to me I'd say uh no I'm, I'm not gonna pay for that that seems silly like if you're showing me something that actually has an effect on movie the needle yeah sure I'll pay for that but to the degree that it doesn't I'm gonna push back a little bit and say
1: why don't you spend my money more res- more responsibly exactly and uh, r- real quick go back to those numbers it is Florida the highest no well, Ca-
0: California is the highest okay. Florida's in second place okay yeah Florida has 29 million Florida California has Exactly fifty nine million two hundred eighty seven thousand eight hundred sixteen. I see. So,
1: and you, and you know, if th- again those those treatment dollars and this, I mean, it maybe sounds a little bit self serving to talk about the that money getting reallocated to uh, treatment services, but again, for the high risk guys, that's that's where it should go. And again, the the, the idea, uh, hopefully, that can be the take home message is that. Sex offenders, for the most part, do get better. They they. It's not one of those once a sex offender, always a sex offender scenarios. It was, it's a really common myth that still gets perpetuated quite a bit. You know? I, I, right.
0: And, well, and even, like, you know, one cat, one, uh, I mean, we've talked about the offenders. We've talked about the general public. But one thing is, is what about the sexual assault survivors? So the victims, right? And what they what they did was um, they surveyed sexual assault survivors, 598 of them, which, again, that's a pretty good size, and they responded to reports of the... the, So overall, the the respondents reported support for Sorna to be applied to all sex offenders regardless of the relationship to the victim, so it, it didn't matter what the relationship was, and did not believe... That it impacted reporting by the survivors to law enforcement. So, in other words, survivor they did not believe that that the registry um, improved the likelihood that additional sex offenses are going to be reported to law enforcement. Mm. So that whole thing about like, well, what about those that go unreported? Well, the registry, at least according to the assault survivors, does nothing for that. And they also said that um, that, that it was that the, the 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 people who were surveyed provided less support for sorna as a mechanism to provide public safety or deter future sexual offending and they indicated concerns related to sorna providing a false sense of security so mm-hmm. so there it is i mean you have all of that there is is essentially just saying that well <laughs> so so really you're not you're not Uh, at least according to the people that have been actually victimized. They don't believe that this is going to deter anybody. They don't believe that this increases follow-up reports to law enforcement. And they also don't believe that this provides any additional security, right? I mean,
1: if anybody should be listened to, shouldn't they? I I think that that is probably the piece that could sway the public because, again, the public makes – I think they make a lot of their decisions around keeping the registry on on emotion and out of concern for the victims. And so, yeah, hearing it straight from the people that have been through whatever, you know, atrocious abuse they've been through, advocating against the efficacy of the registry that if that's that that's got to be a nice emotion based complement to the hard data that that shows the same. Right.
0: And I'm, I mean, in, in summary, I, w- I think one thing we can all look at this and say, the research on the effectiveness of the registration, uh, obviously by everything we've cited today, and, and I'll make sure I put in the episode notes all the research so you guys don't know, don't think we're just blowing smoke. I'll put all the citations. The the the, the research on SORNA and, 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 you know, in short, the registry remains relatively limited. And um, findings from a lot of these studies are, are inconclusive because a lot of this is based on like you know almost qualitative opinion of who's being talked to. Um, any of the any of the things that um, I, I guess some studies you know find lower rates of uh, sex offense crimes following Sorna while others don't. So some good rigorous data and research into this would be would be well spent. And, and unfortunately, I think what you're saying. You know, more often than not, this is gonna. I don't think this is gonna be fixed in the near future. I think it's gonna remain in place because it is just such an unpopular opinion to suggest we're gonna get rid of the registration. I don't think any normal citizen without some education would be in support of that. Absolutely. So, for what it's worth, there it is, folks. Um, I mean, hopefully, this information was informative, and uh, we look forward to some of your responses on this. And, and of course, you know, feel free to comment um, on, on what your personal feelings on this are. And again, I I don't think we take sides necessarily more. So I I try to take a pragmatic view of this and, and see how it's impacting our clients and really where those dollars would be better spent since we're kind of in the thick of it. So anything else you want to say on this, Jeff? No, we've got a
1: UFC lightweight championship match to watch.
0: Holla. Yep. Okay, well, thank you guys for uh, all of your attention and listening to us. We appreciate your ongoing listenership. We'll see you on our next episode. And that about does it for episode number 35. Thanks again for listening. Uh, We really appreciate everybody um, paying attention and and, uh, subscribing. Uh, If you have not yet, please make sure you share this with one of your buddies. Um, We have put all the citations for the research that we cited um, today in the listener notes. For those of you who are curious, we look forward to your feedback. Um, We'll see you at episode number 36. Thanks, everybody.